0: Hi and welcome to Media Talk, a podcast by SMP Global Market Intelligence, where we take a deep dive into issues facing the evolving media landscape. I'm your host, Anser Heather, and together with my colleague Neil Barber, we'll be talking about some of the more significant developments in the video game industry this year. 2022 started out with a bang for gaming, uh, with back-to-back record M&A deals that came amid growing interest from companies to expand into technologies such as the blockchain, cloud, and of course, the metaverse. Meanwhile, the global chip shortage continues to impact the production of video game consoles, forcing gaming companies to reassess their short and long-term strategies. But let's start by talking about the 2022 Game Developers Conference, or GDC, which took place in San Francisco the week of March 21st, following two years of virtual and hybrid events due to COVID-19. Neil, you managed to attend the event in person. Uh, What were some of the topics and developments that stood out to you the most?
1: Sure. Thanks for having
0: me answer. Yeah.
1: You know, just a note about the uh, actual conference itself. Uh, I just saw the attendance figures were uh, 12,000 in person. Uh, that's down from about 27,000 from 2019. So the conference scene isn't quite back yet, at least in the development community. But uh, there there was a pretty interesting confluence of the themes you, you just mentioned. And I think one of the big takeaways that I saw was... Um, blockchain technology starting to enter the game space um, in, a, in a bigger way. It's been floating around certain projects. Uh, certain publishers have been taking it more seriously than others. Not a lot of the big publishers have have launched too much blockchain or, or cryptocurrency. But at the show, we started to see certainly a lot of publishers and blockchain service providers talking about ways that the, the game industry can start to drift closer to um, cryptocurrency and NFTs. And, uh, you know, talking with those publishers and um, the blockchain service providers and sitting in on some talks and panels regarding the issues, I started to see three driving forces behind this, uh, the emergence of blockchain and video games. And the first one is publishers and developers are looking to have a first mover advantage in the metaverse. And they think that blockchain can sort of underpin, uh, you know, the authentication mechanisms through uh, uh, NFTs can underpin a lot of the creator economies that, that met the metaverse sort of plays around. The idea that uh, a, a player can get inside the game and, and build their own house and own their own land and, and really have agency over um, the different actions that take place inside of there. And sort of tied into that is tying uh, in-game items to NFTs. So that's a way to drive new revenue. Perhaps you can unlock some demand uh, around in-game items that didn't exist before they were tied to NFTs, because NFTs uh, non-fungible tokens can give those items real world value. So publishers are looking at that aspect aspect as, as sort of maybe live services revenue growth starts to slow, maybe there's another uh, there's more value that could be unlocked there. Uh, and, and the third, and it's kind of tied in with the other two, is getting outside of the app store. Uh, and circumventing the 30% platform fee collected by um, the various app stores, you know, Apple App Store, Google Play, uh, Valve Steam, PlayStation Store. Uh, Each of those platforms take 30% of every transaction, the game and the end game transactions. And by moving the uh, payment processing to cryptocurrency, they can get away from some of that and keep more of the money and drive margins higher. And sort of an interesting note around that Market Intelligence put, um, or Kagan, the Kagan group of Market Intelligence, put a survey into the field in March talking about, well, one aspect of it was around cryptocurrency. And the results showed that people who identified as Gaming Weekly um, are way more likely to have uh, bought and sold uh, NFTs and cryptocurrency in the last six months. So uh, th- it suggests that there, there's the market is primed for a more significant crossover with cryptocurrency uh, sooner rather than later.
0: Right. That's interesting because um, there's also a lot of opposition to cryptocurrency uh, and NFTs making their way into games. Uh, Ubisoft's Quartz, uh, which uh, allows players to buy and sell NFTs, uh, it's faced uh intense derision, be it from gamers who took to social media or press outlets that published editorials about the service essentially being one big grift, if anything. And then, of course, several other companies that expressed interest in entering the space like Sega quickly retreated after the backlash hit them as well. Uh, do you think there's some merit to this dislike that NFTs are facing, especially within the gaming industry? Does this maybe stem from the distrust that consumers harbor after being subjected to questionable in-game monetization practices, which in many cases uh, uh, is viewed as uh, predatory and unfair?
1: Yeah, and you, so- you, you totally saw that split on the show floor. Uh, a lot of developers, in particular, see uh, you know the process of making games as a, an artistic or an intellectual pursuit, and when NFTs and um, cryptocurrency get involved, then maybe it, it it seems more like a grift to them than it seems like a a, a true artistic endeavor. Uh, so there was a lot of pushback uh, toward that uh, on just conversations I had with developers on the floor. Uh, if you were in the Wordle panel that that took place at the show. Uh, the the vibe there was definitely one that like that you know games can continue to be a pursuit outside of uh, just growing the market, trying to find ways to um, speak to players without ne- necessarily speaking to their financial interests. Um, so I I don't know if that the the broader perception that NFTs haven't worked so far, so they can't work is. Necessarily, the end of the story. I, you know, there there's going to be a lot of um, push and pull of the ways that they they can that cryptocurrency can work, and and the fit and finish is going to be a, a big story. I, I you know, from I sort of feel that the uh, a developer or a publisher will have to build a game from the ground up, speaking to uh, blockchain technology, that it, it probably won't be able to just uh, shoehorned into uh, an existing game. I think that is going to spur a lot of pushback from the user base in general, the broader gaming community and particularly the press that said, you know, I don't know what the, the cryptocurrency game looks like, or if it's, it's, it's coming soon. Uh, you know, you recently saw, you know, and there's other stories like the Axie infinity and story that came up the last couple of days that, uh, the company was hacked and a lot of the, the, um, the cryptocurrency was somehow sucked out of the game. And so players are at a loss, uh, so the, there's all that stuff floating around, and, and that'll all have to be sorted out before it really hits critical mass. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think there is some merit to it, but it, there, we're we're more at the beginning of the story than we are at the end of it. So there's going to be growing pains.
0: Yeah, a lot of the major publishers, um, their executives, when they're talking during their earnings call, be it EA, Activision, or Take-Two, they, they're often asked about you know if they're going to be implementing NFTs or going into this space and they're, they're being quite vague right now, which I guess looking at some of the backlash that other companies are getting is uh, the right call um, till they get a you know, feel of the market and actually have a strategy in place instead of just shoehorning uh, stuff into their games like Ubisoft is being accused of doing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting to see um, how it's uh, going to evolve.
1: Right. You know, And I usually think about in-game transactions can go all the way back to you know, two thousand four, two thousand five. I'm thinking about like horse armor and oblivion, and how that was <laughs> yeah. sort of the laughing stock of the industry for a while. And it took a long time for someone to kind of figure out how microtransactions worked inside of games. And really, there was a, a total reinvention of a couple genres, or the emergence of new genres. I'm you know, thinking mobas and and battle royales before they really clicked with consumers. And and I know, League of Legends came out maybe 2011, 2012, I might be getting that wrong. But the the underlying point there is that it took a half decade for the idea to turn into something that consumers actually, uh, that actually resonated with consumers.
0: Yep, exactly. And of course, um, all these blockchain technologies, they tie into the metaverse, uh, which is uh, a buzzword these days. Every major gaming company has been talking about it as well in their respective uh, earnings and analyst calls. And Microsoft's uh, CEO, Satya Nadella, specifically brought it up when uh, talking about the company's uh, record 68.7 billion deal to acquire Activision Blizzard. And this record deal, uh, of course, came very shortly after Take-Two announced a deal to acquire uh, mobile game developer Zynga, which was also a record deal before the Activision uh, one was announced. Uh, and then, of course, we've seen a couple of other notable acquisitions uh, uh, in the gaming space this year, including two from Sony. So, Neil, why do you think we're seeing such aggressive M&A in the market this year? Is it, does it all have to do with the metaverse or are there other elements involved as well?
1: Right. Great question. Uh, I think there are a lot of strands to, to pull together here. Uh, I think the main one that sort of sits on top of all of them is that uh, the video game industry is approaching a $200 billion annual revenue opportunity. And it's one that's increasingly hard to ignore from the outside looking in, but particularly from the inside looking out. The, these guys, particularly Take-Two and Sony, they know what works. They, they've been in the industry and they can see what's growing and what isn't. And Take-Two sort of zeroed in on uh, mobile with the Zynga purchase. Uh, you know, mobile accounts for half of all gaming content spend from consumers and Sony sort of saw Bungie as uh, a, a, a way to get it deeper into life, live services, uh, which is sort of an extension of what the market that mobile created. And that is to say that a lot of mobile games are either uh, free to play or there's a low barrier to entry. And then they monetize it by keeping players engaged with sort of um, season passes and uh, different um. Weapons or armor or coins to buy, or what have you, and and Bungie's Destiny sort of follows that playbook as well. So there's there's a a bit of a land grab going on there where you you just want to buy the the most important players or properties inside the fastest growing spaces. Uh, you could say Activision uh, Microsoft's purchase of Activision Blizzard does the same thing, uh, particularly as uh, well. They have Candy Crush nestled under there. Uh, so they have that, that mobile know-how. But they also have uh, Call of Duty is, is slowly becoming more of a live service. Uh, and then you can look at other properties like World of Warcraft, Diablo, uh, Overwatch that have the potential to grow into that as well. Um, the other thing that Microsoft is looking at is that they own a uh, a platform. So they want, you know, be it hardware or Cloud or just the subscription service, so they want to bring a lot of content in there. So they're definitely that's that's sort of the um, the biggest land grab is is just to find content to put inside of your your platform play. Um, When when Microsoft talks about the metaverse, I I, it's unclear I think to most people what exactly they mean. If they mean the metaverse is a collection of games, then then they're building toward that in in a really strong way, obviously. maybe they mean that they're buying a lot of virtual world-building expertise. So the people who made War, Call of Duty Warzone, which is a huge landmass that you can run around in uh, with a lot of interaction, you know, maybe they can somehow parlay that into uh, what our vision of the metaverse is, which is just wandering around in virtual spaces and making it more interactive and more permanent and, and things of that nature. I mean, th- those those are the kind of, Things that you're thinking about when when you're talking about the this major M&A um, build out and and you know just to put it into um, perspective, 2022 has been a, a the biggest year for M&A by far. You know we're only th- two or three months in, and it's already um, you know a hundred billion dollar uh, year for M&A. And the, the next biggest year was something like 25 billion. Uh, so you know that is. It's you sort of look at it and say there's probably more to come, uh, but it, it, it's it's sort of an open question is who wants to make the the next big buy. I probably nothing as big as 78 billion, but um, which is the gross transaction value of the Microsoft Activision um, acquisition. But your mind sort of like wanders. What's who's, who else is looking for a, tw- a 10, 15, 20 billion dollar acquisition?
0: Uh, You mentioned that mobile uh, takes up a significant chunk of the market, and that's interesting because now Netflix is uh, entering into the space as well. Uh, In the last six months alone, uh, it acquired three different uh, companies, uh, mobile gaming companies, and uh, the talk is that they're like planning to expand and eventually add uh, more um, ambitious titles as well that they'll offer to their subscribers. So what do you think, like, does Netflix have a chance at making a splash in this space as well? When I look at uh, the
1: M&A that that Netflix has pursued so far, um, you know, we're talking about $100 million deals, uh, smaller, uh, you know, mobile focused developers, but not really live service uh, developers, or at least not to the level of your Zyngas and your Candy Crushes and so on. Uh, so I think their ambitions are still pretty modest. I wouldn't really start thinking about them a- as part of this land grab and- until they start rolling out the uh, a deal at least the size of Bungie, which was about $4 billion. Um, so I- they're putting together a-, a-, a curated portfolio of games that they think will probably resonate with their existing users, stuff that is already... that Some of the uh, developers' next games is one that they bought that had already been working on stranger things properties. So that's a pretty easy roll in. Uh, it, I, I think that it's still early days for them and they're looking at these as sort of value ads, not services that can necessarily grow revenue, but to keep users sticky or to keep them in the platform.
0: Right. And then circling back to Sony, uh, uh, like you mentioned, they said that their acquisitions of uh, Bungie and more recently Haven Studios are tied into their plans to get deeper into live service games, which are, of course, titles that are purposefully designed to keep users engaged and playing with a stream of post-launch content. This is the prominent business model these days, uh, and Sony wants in, and they confirmed that they plan to launch at least 10 live service titles by 2026. However, we also know that live services are the games-as-a-service model uh, they are not instant wins. There have been some high-profile, inexpensive misfires in this space, so with every hit like Destiny, we, we see titles like EA's Anthem that flop spectacularly or Scray Enix's Marvel's Avengers that's severely underwhelmed. Uh, a more recent example from the latter company is Babylon's Fall, which is perhaps one of the worst-reviewed and worst-selling titles from a major AAA publisher in a while. So, why do you think Sony is adamant to enter the space despite the clear risks that are involved?
1: Right. There definitely are risks involved. Uh, I think what they're looking at is developing um, recurrent revenue streams or at least consistent revenue streams, something that can deliver quarter after quarter. Right now, their, their primary business model is selling games, um, uh, selling a couple games throughout the year. So they'll, they'll, they usually put one in, in Q1 and then in Q4 is usually their big temple uh so at the game hits they get a bunch of sales up front and then and then that revenue hopefully offsets development costs and gives them margin uh what what uh live service can do is give you uh, consistent revenue in q1 q2 q3 q4 uh and it can do that usually over the course of two or three years uh, the big ones and then they sort of roll off and when you look at something like fortnite which had a 5 billion dollar year up front and then um had pretty good years afterward and it's probably down to something like a billion a year, which is certainly not nothing uh, at this point. Uh, that's the sort of success that they would love to have. They're probably not dreaming that big, although, you know, the sky's the limit. What the idea of making 10 is that you place a lot of bets. Like you say, I mean, they they can be really risky and not all of them are going to take off uh, and not all of them are going to be uh, really, really expensive for them either. I'm sure they'll have some that are that are built more to perform, and some that are built as sort of like, this is an edge play. Uh, so that, that's how I would look at that, is just they're, they're trying to make sure there's something that'll appeal to uh, anyone, and then a couple things that will hopefully will appeal to everyone, and it'll grow from there.
0: Right. Sony also announced that it's revamping its PlayStation Plus subscription service, which starting in June will have three different membership tiers. Uh, The highest tier is merging PlayStation Now, uh, their cloud gaming service, into Plus, uh, making the overall product somewhat similar to Microsoft's Game Pass uh, Ultimate, which also offers online multiplayer, library of games, and cloud streaming. However, unlike Game Pass, uh, PlayStation Plus will not offer Sony's exclusive first-party titles uh, on day of release. While the strategy is working for Microsoft, uh, which has grown Game Pass to over 25 million subscribers. PlayStation CEO Jim Ryan argued that uh, this wouldn't work for Sony as it wouldn't allow the company to sustain the level of investment it puts into its game studios. Uh, Do you think he raises a valid point here?
1: So I would back up and look at um, Sony's uh, success in subscriptions compared to Microsoft so far. So Sony has about, uh, I think they reported 48 million uh, PlayStation Plus subscribers as, as of the end of 2021. Um, I think that plan can range from $6 to $10 a month, depend- depending on how much you buy up front. Uh, and if you sort of pull out that uh, level of uh, attached to the Xbox install base, you get about like 15 to 20 million subscribers. So put that on top of the uh, Xbox Game Pass subscribers, and we're talking about 40 to 45 million compared to Sony's. 50 to 55 million if you would roll in however many um, PS Now subscribers they also have, which as you mentioned was the cloud service. So Sony's doing okay in subscriptions. They've definitely got that recurring revenue stream already going. Uh, what they don't have, like you say, is all of their first party games on the service. And they what where Microsoft is trying to sort of disrupt the current business model of what I described earlier is you release a game every once in a while uh, and then collect that at at retail, you know, you release a game for $70 and collect that money. What they're trying to do is get $10 a month from everyone who has an Xbox. And so far they've gotten to about, you know, three, three quarters. If you, if you count game pass plus, um, Xbox live gold subscribers, um, they've got about, you know, 60, 75% of that install base covered. Um, if they go, uh, if, if they were to hit all of their install base, um, that's still not as many as subscriptions as something like a Disney Plus has or an HBO Max has. Well, all of HBO, let's say HBO plus HBO Max is 74 million. So they would need to expand out to uh, cloud gaming at that point to really push uh, the level of engagement that that would make this a subscription service that that rivals what they're probably looking at, which is the, the video OTT.
0: Right. And then- Looking to the subscription sites specifically uh, for cloud gaming, we also have Google's Stadia and Amazon's Luna. Now, Stadia was the first major cloud gaming service in the market, but it hasn't really managed to make much of an impact. Um, I believe uh, Kagan Research estimated it as having 2 million as of year-end 2021?
1: Yeah, a lot of the smaller uh, cloud gaming services haven't gotten a, a ton of traction yet, and I think when you look at that compared to the business model that uh, PlayStation and Xbox are doing, which they already have a captive uh, audience with their hardware to sell into, um, that's probably a more successful business model right now. Uh, The things that hold a Luna back or a Stadia back or a uh, NVIDIA GeForce now is they don't have a broad penetration of compatible devices uh, and they don't really have a huge library. Uh, so whereas a Game Pass can sell you a, a lot of games uh, and a lot of high-profile games, you get your Halos and your Forzas on there, uh, those other services don't really have that muscle right now. And, and where they do, it's not an all-you-can-eat like a Stadia. They have to sell you the individual titles. So there's all these little hang-ups that, that are going to probably persist uh, I think the primary one is is still the compatible devices, but probably not far behind that is that the, the service is still contingent upon how close you are to the data center, how good your in-home network is. Uh, as those things improve, maybe these smaller services can uh, pick up some momentum, but they're still going to have the content thing to worry about. And that's where you sort of look at uh, will there be more MA opportunities for these companies? Now, Stadia sort of signaled that they're not interested in having a lot of studios on their own to push um, exclusive content. That, you know, and even in some cases, they license out the, uh, the Stadia platform that individual publishers could use, uh, or at least the Stadia backend that any ind- individual publishers could use to put games on the cloud without uh, taking advantage of or not putting their games on Stadia explicitly. So uh, they're sort of casting a wide net uh, and maybe they, their plan isn't to grow Stadia into one of those services that rivals the 74 million, the 100 million subscribers that, that uh, Microsoft and Sony are looking for.
0: Right. And then, of course, the gaming industry is still suffering from the ongoing chip shortage that is impacting just about every other industry as well. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a clear end in sight to this problem. Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo are still continuing to suffer lower hardware shipments and sales because of it. Do you think that this shortage of consoles could actually be beneficial to services uh, like subscription and cloud services?
1: Yeah, you know, when we look at uh, as of five quarters in the market, the PS5 and PS5 all digital together. They're about three million units behind where the PS4 was at this time in its lifespan, uh, so that's that's sort of a deficit that they're gonna have to dig out of. And it's and like you say, we don't really know when these uh, when the the supply and logistics are gonna ease up and they're actually gonna be able to get the units to bring to market. Um, I think Microsoft is already looking at uh, a future where they can push some of at least their casual users to cloud. I think. Local hardware is always going to be important for hardcore gamers that want the best picture and the lowest latency. Uh, so that that's probably going to stick around for at least another generation or two, if not much longer. If maybe forever, maybe there will always be demand. You can only get true eight K with a local hardware, and you know it always it always looks better if you have it on site. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to push ten to fifteen percent of. Your users to a cloud option, and that's kind of what they're doing with Game Pass Ultimate, which allows you to play some of the games on the cloud. Uh, and they have currently they have all all their uh, biggest new games on there. As I mentioned, the Halos and the Forzas are available on uh, cloud right now. What they don't have is. Um, partnerships in streaming media devices or smart TVs that anybody with, oh, say a Fire TV or a Roku could start taking advantage of this service right now, or even a Samsung smart TV. They've been talking about that for a while. Um, they've also been talking about making their own streaming media device. So think of a Xbox Series S, but cheaper, and all it does is connect to the cloud. You get the controller and a little box that plugs into your TV. And then, you know, that that opens up the potential of their own uh, streaming operating system play, which can drive different kinds of revenue. So, I, I think that it, strategically, Microsoft probably wants to get to at least a hybrid cloud local hardware future um, sooner rather than later. I'm not sure Sony is taking that quite as seriously. Uh, you know, as you say, they have options to stream games over the cloud, um, but they've made, had a lot of success in selling. Uh, digital and physical games that run on local hardware and and they're probably not going to move off that spot until they're forced to.
0: There have been rumors floating around for a while now about Nintendo planning to launch uh, an update version of the Switch with uh, 4K graphic capabilities. We of course got the Switch OLED version but it was essentially the same device with an upgraded uh, screen. Presumably the chip shortages are the reason Nintendo hasn't been able to launch this device. but. Assuming that that is something they were planning to eventually launch, do you think it would make sense to actually go ahead with it the coming year, or maybe the year after, or should they just bench it for their next console?
1: If you look at the Wii, uh, they waited about six or seven years to put out the Wii U, and I think at the time that was sort of seen as a, a generational leap, but looking back, maybe it was a way to extend the life of the Wii by putting something out that played Wii games um, and then it could play a slate of new software that was um, slightly better, visually speaking. Uh, and so they ran with that and that wasn't much of a success. You could say, oh, it confused the market or it wasn't a hard enough split from Wii hardware to really warrant uh, an upgraded purchase. And so then a few years passed, four or four, five more years passed, and then they came out with the switch and that was considered either by consumers to be either uh, a A big enough generational leap, or they liked the novelty of the handheld um, TV hybrid, or the software that came out was was more captivating than what they had done before, and then sales went through the roof again. I think you're probably going to see a repeat of that mentality of maybe next year, this year, next year, let's put something out that is still a switch but better, and so we get uh, we get kind of we we can buoy sales for a while. Um, And then uh, uh, three, four, five more years after that, then we'll consider our hard break from the previous hardware. And at that point, you can start renewing your software library again, like, oh, here's an even newer look at Zelda that addresses all the things that we didn't do uh, in the Breath of the Wild sequel or anything like that. So what people are are thinking about right now, right, is that uh, NVIDIA has uh, upscaling technology and NVIDIA is the graphics hardware that... uh, the switch is using so that's their their um their chip partner and nvidia has upscaling technology called dlss uh, which can be put into individual games it's not at the driver level it needs to be implemented as of now it needs to be implemented in each game um, so it's not that it would be there would be new software that didn't work on the old switch but it would look way better on the the new switch uh, whether or not that's the direction they go or some other uh, sort of just significant hardware. I, I do think we'll see some some upgrade to the hardware over the next couple of years here. Will it be the next break? No, probably not. Uh, that's probably further down the road. Because what they got to look at now is uh, ringing as much margin out of the install base that they have. This is the largest TV connected console install base they've ever had. So they they need, really need to hit on some software which is higher margin than than hardware. To sell to those consumers that already bought it and really concentrate on that over the next few years and then sort of play a game with, with the hardware where they're, they're making incre- incremental changes. still so keeping the, the core fan base uh, happy with new things to buy uh, as well as feeding software to the uh, install base.
0: All right. And that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Neil, for taking the time to share your valuable insight. Thank you, Answer. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay safe and goodbye.